We are back, baby. We are back. That's we right. are back. You are looking live. We get after it. You know, we jabber jaw. We go tit for tat. We have our little differences. Let's get funky like a monkey. And here we go. Hello and welcome to the Moose and Moose Podcast, this episode 150 of the pod, a milestone pod that is halfway to a to a double hundy. Uh, Matt Tri- Rooney will be a triple hundred. Triple hundred? Halfway to a triple hundred. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm if you double 150, it's 300. You're right. Yeah. You're right. I, I guess I was thinking more in terms of the, the hundred marker. So right. I'm so the math this, guy, you're the, uh, yeah. you're, the, you're the words guy. Yeah, let's let's keep it that way, and um, let's uh, let's talk about a little NFL draft today. Let's get into some best ofs. We know we hit you with a half episode one ninety five. Solicited some best of questions. You guys gave us some good topics that we're going to give our best ofs as a little bit of a, a memento to uh, episode one fifty here. But first, we got to dive into a little NFL draft, which begins tonight. Uh, that is Thursday. Uh, what's the date today? Today would be the twenty something. 23rd, yes. Looked on my left. 23rd of April. Uh, depending on when you're listening to this, there could be some picks off the board already. There could be a full draft in the books, but uh, we're going to give you a little bit of a, a draft preview here before we jump into those best ofs, Matt. And, uh, you know, we got to go Bears-centric. we got to talk about needs. we got to talk about targets. But uh, let's go to the top of the draft board first. Sure. And the big topic has been Tua Tagovailoa because it's kind of – Written in stone, Joe Burrow's going one to Cincinnati. Many people think that uh, the Redskins are going to go with best available player, then hit Chase Young, uh, get a little edge protect or a little edge rush because they already have a quarterback that they drafted a year ago. Now, is he as good as Tua? Is he as good as Justin Herbert? That's another conversation. But the Redskins, all estimations are not looking for a quarterback right now. Yeah. Um, does that change leading up to the draft? We'll see if they're trying to pull capital from someone. A lot of people are talking about Herbert over Tua now, and I think that's in fear of the medicals. Um, see, that's, what, that's what I wanted to ask you about, and I was you, you brought up the medicals, and, and that kind of switch that seems to be happening. You're, you're the one who's you know talking to these people more on a uh, regular basis, doing your interviews with CBS. What, what Are there health concerns with Tua? Because it seemed yes. like after his hip, you know, whatever. Yeah, it pretty much said he was going to fully recover and be fine. And now, you know, it, as these things always tend to do around draft time, you know, narratives start to, you know, new narratives start to kick in and people start to jump boards. People start to, you know, rise boards. What's going on there? What? Why is Justin the Herbert going biggest, from a late first round pick to now possibly number five in the draft? The biggest, and that is where the biggest mistake is going to be made, is Someone's know, overval- take top five. overvaluing Justin Herbert, where I think that it makes sense to be wary of Tua and what he's bringing to your franchise and mm-hmm. his game readiness and how that hip will hold up when he does make contact with the turf, when he does have someone land on top of him on the opposite side. Like That's when you're going to see the real durability of that hip. The factor here, the main X factor, is that teams has not been able to get their hands on Tua physically. They've mm-hmm. not been able to sit in a room with him, put him through tests, because that those are things you're allowed to do when you're, you know, looking at drafting a prospect is you're able to give your physical. And sometimes those physicals are far more physical yeah. than what you think of as going to the doctor and turning your head they're to actually, the left. They're, like, actual they're actually yeah, they're actually testing, you know, these parts of the body that have had wear and tear. Uh, so I think from a standpoint of unknowingness into his hip, that's where a lot of people are giving pause because, I mean, with a top five pick, if you're the Miami Dolphins or if you're the Chargers or if you're anybody else, you're 
you're you're mortgaging your franchise on this individual. A lot of people's jobs will be forever tied to this individual. How we talk about Ryan Pace's job being tied to, you know, Matt Nagy and Mitch Trubisky. Those decisions that you make, someone's someone's career is going to be tied to the hip of Tua Tagovailoa, and that's a lot to put your put your neck out there and and kind of take that sort of chance. So I think that caution is what people are erring on the side of that are that are against to it. Now there is still a camp, I'd say it's about fifty one to forty nine caution to he's a he's a can't miss prospect. Mm-hmm. Like there's still a ton of belief in Tua. My biggest questions outside of health are size for one. He's yep. not the biggest guy in the world. And I know it's kind of a boneheaded take here, but there's a reason why no lefty has thrown a pass in the NFL since twenty fifteen. It's just weird. The ball spins different. It comes out different. You have to um, you have to send protection to different sides. The blind side's completely flipped. You, you have to convince a left tackle to maybe think about playing right tackle and completely changing their foot, their steps. Like mm-hmm. a lot goes into having a lefty quarterback. There's a there's a different lead hand underneath you if you're a center. Like it just it, it's a lot of subliminal is not the right word. It's a lot of subconscious changes, but things that you feel minor, you're minor tweaks. You're gonna have to, yeah, My, you. minor tweaks that people are going to have to always come to terms with. And yes, if you're building your franchise around the guy, you make those changes and hope that he's the long-term answer. But the idea that Tua Tagovailoa is going to play 16 games next year is just unrealistic. I, mean, I agree. He, I totally agree with to, you there. He needs to go somewhere like Miami where he can be behind Fitzpatrick for 10 weeks a year uh, get that body right. Maybe take a little bit of contact in preseason roles, like just like ease them into it. Because we've talked about it in the past, and I'm rambling on here, but we've talked about it in the past. How the quarterbacks that have success are the ones that get to sit and watch for a little while. Bad hip or not, two and each time, and he can't go to a place um, where he's going to be asked to be the starting quarterback right away. You see, you, you you stole the point right from me there. That that's what I wanted to say is that there's you know five and six is you know right there. Miami and the Chargers seem to be two teams poised to you know take a quarterback or at least be heavily considering a quarterback. I really hope for Tua's sake he goes to Miami because if he goes to L.A. You have a coach who's on the hot seat. You have a quarterback in Tyrod Taylor, who I believe right now is the front Tyrod. runner to be the Tyrod. whatever to be the <laughs> front runner to be the starter there. Um, so that's probably not one that's going to last. And that's a coach who's you know kind of on the hot seat, like I was saying. And you know if you, if you start that season it's one NFL and four, purgatory. If you start it's that NFL season purgatory. one and four, that coach is going to feel the pressure. Bring in a guy like yeah. to it, you know the young first round draft pick instead of riding it out. If you're losing his job, whereas in Miami, you got a guy in Brian Flores who took a team that was supposed to go one in 15 and won five, six games with him last year, did a lot of good things, have a quarterback in Ryan Fitzpatrick who's kind of been there, done that before, can win you some football games. And Brian Flores has probably built up enough goodwill where he doesn't have to worry about losing his job right away and can just can, can just commit to keeping two on the bench for 10 weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, you know, one full season, whatever you want to make sure that he gets all the, you know, health he needs the the medical attention he needs the you know attention to the playbook the whatever all those certain things that he needs to grow as a young quarterback he can give him that time i think that's why miami is the best spot for him kind of in that top 10 top five yep taking into account that it's going to be a fully virtual draft on thursday night is going to throw some curveballs do we see more moves do we see less moves do we see people dealing in the top 10 i think that a lot of general managers in this case are going to 
um, minimize the changes in the top 10, top 20 picks. Maybe you start seeing some swapping. Things getting a little looser on day two, but um, I don't think anyone wants to make the big mistake on a Skype call right now. So I just It wouldn't um, shock me, though, to see some guys wheeling and dealing in the first round just because they don't have a draft room right now. For the yeah. most part, it is GMs in their living rooms kind of doing this. I, I'm sure they're on Zoom calls, whatever you want to be with their front office, but you know, you can mute those and make a phone call and you don't have, you know, 15 other guys and you're saying, hey, we can't give them that extra round, second yeah. round pick to move. Like, I think there might be some egos and some, some you know, not, you know, people to not talk these GMs out of making deals that they want to make, you know, to go be aggressive and jump up. So it wouldn't shock me to see a few of those, you know, overpaying deals to move up because it's just one guy dealing with one guy, not necessarily having 15. That's a good point. Here. There might be a little bit less check and balance uh, built into this draft here. I saw uh, a tweet saying Jerry Jones is drafting by himself from his living room, so that's, that's that hilarious. could get interesting. He's going to trade Dak and his entire draft to move up for Justin Herbert. Um, so just that, you know, that nuance of not really having a status quo for how these guys are going to be drafting physically, what their what their environment's going to be, you know. Uh, we've made fun of Dave Gettleman in the past here, but, you know, if you're ready and you got your board, it doesn't matter how many monitors mm-hmm. you have in front of you. You go pick your guys, and hopefully you come out of this in uh, on the positive side of things. And the Patriots is the team that scares me here. Everyone's written them off. You know, we 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 glaze over the Gronkowski news um, because we did five hours of it on the show, and my brain's just numb to it. But Gronk going to Tampa Bay, joining Tom. Fourth round pick goes back to New England. He picked up a fourth England, round pick out of midair. If you look at New England's draft board right now, Bill Belichick has a war chest of picks, and if someone has a success rate with picks, it's going to be Bill Belichick. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can get the Pats at plus money for division champs next year, I'm still taking that. The Buffalo doesn't scare me. Uh, they're just not. They're very one dimensional. It's easy to stop them. Buffalo doesn't scare me at all. Miami's going to be rebuilding still for another year. They'll be good in two years. So there's going to be, uh, you know, from a divisional standpoint, I, I think it's just going to be wide open. And if it's wide open, the Patriots are going to be the team that rises to that occasion. So just a little bit of aside there. But um, let's talk a little bit about the Gronkowski news. Matt, the biggest question here is. Which Rob Gronkowski shows up? A, a one that's a little lighter in the saddle, a one that's a little bit, um, you know, smaller physically, the WWE champion who feels good about his body, but maybe isn't as apt to block on the interior as he was so effective at doing in his past. Um, but, you know, your initial thoughts to Gronk going to Tampa Bay because it is a big move, it is a big moment. Um, for the offense there in Tampa because, I mean, from a weapons standpoint, you're talking about Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Cam Brait, uh, Rob Gronkowski. For now, uh, O.J. Howard, but I wouldn't be shocked to see O.J. Howard's on the trading block. Ryan Pace. Yeah, that's another question here. We'll get to that when we talk about targets for uh, the Bears through the draft. But um, Gronk to to Tampa Bay inspires what? Any sort of change in your mind? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that makes them – does that make them the favorites in that division? I no, mean, it, it, not it, a chance. I think it makes the, them. The New Orleans I, Saints I think it, are think so good, and it, people it, I don't think it, I think it recognize them. that. I think it vaults them ahead of Carolina and Atlanta. I don't think that's too much of a jump no, to make. No, I, I think they were already there when Brady got there. I'm just the, the Saints team I saw last year looked like a somewhat of a shell of themselves from the one two years ago that you know probably should have won the NFC Championship, should have went to the Super Bowl, and the last couple years I've just. I, um, 
it's ironic because the guy on the other side is a 42 year old quarterback. But the last couple of years when I've watched Drew Brees, like I've just kind of found myself saying he looks old. He looks older. And if he takes kind of another, not that he took a big step back from, from two years ago to last year, but if he takes another step back, I don't know how good that offense is going to be. Obviously they, their defense has gotten much better. And I know that's, that's a, that's an example of a great coach, a great franchise, and they'll figure out ways to win, probably win that division. But you got a whole lot of talent in Tampa and you got a really, really good head coach there too. Uh, you could beat the Tampa if, drum as much if, as you if, want. Right, both have if, old if you, quarterbacks. If, both if, have a ton of targets. If you put a gun to my head, if you defense. put a gun to my head and said who's winning that division, I'm gonna. I would bet on the New Orleans Saints because they're they're the New Orleans Saints, and even though Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski are in Tampa, I'd still it's still Tampa. It's, they're still not the Saints, but I think it's going to be a closer race than you know you might Two be things. giving credit for. Two things here. The Saints last year went 13-3 and with Teddy Bridgewater as the quarterback for five and a half weeks. The team around the quarterback is far better than anything they can assemble in Tampa Bay. Michael Thomas, Alvin Kamara was hurt last year. If you can get him to play scot-free like he did two years ago. I think you saw a lot of Chicago Bears in the Saints last year. They just dealt with it better. They mm-hmm. dealt more injuries last year than the year prior. And they still got the playoffs out of it. I mean, an upset against Minnesota, but I think Breeze is going to be fine when you have Michael Thomas, you had Emmanuel Sanders that mix Alvin Kamara out of the backfield. There's so many weapons on that offense, and the biggest thing, and I think that the biggest thing across the league this year is going to be one word, and it's continuity. They're not going to have a normal offense. That's a fair point. You're not going to have your normal time to get on the same page with guys. The New Orleans Saints know their offense. They know what they're running. They know the personnel. Emmanuel Sanders is the only one that's got to get up to speed, and he's a consummate professional. He did I miss Emmanuel this- Sanders signing with New Orleans? I must have. You did. I don't, I don't Emmanuel remember Sanders. Happened. Emmanuel Sanders picked up Kyle Shanahan's offense in like six days last year when he got picked up by the 49ers. He was out there playing that week. He's... From a X's and O's standpoint, nothing else needs to convince me that he can go anywhere and pick up the offense. He's got a full offseason to do it. But outside of that, the pieces are in place, and they have been in New Orleans. I think continuity is going to rear its ugly head numerous times throughout the season for the Bucks. And now you also have the storyline that's going to be coming down the pipe of, you know, Tom brings his guy in and he's using his checks, but it's Bruce Arians' offense. Uh, then they have a game that they lose that they should have won with a questionable call by Arians. Should Tom have his fingerprints on the offense more? So there's just a lot in Tampa Bay from a headline standpoint that can distract. I think they do get in with a wild card because it's Tom Brady and Tom Brady doesn't miss the playoffs. I mean, I don't think Tom Brady's led a team to less than 10 wins in like a decade. Mm -hmm. So I think they do get a wild card nod, but I'm still saying that New Orleans is head and shoulders a better football team. I have them, uh, I think from a, like I said, from a talent standpoint, I don't think it's head and shoulders, but the continuity point you bring up is a very fair one. And I think that this year, uh, you know, more than any other year. Not that continuity isn't always important, but this year more than any other. That's probably going to play a pretty big factor. Um, but your original question was actually what role do I think Gronk's going to play? Yes. Um, I think he's I mean, he's going to put on some weight. I think he has to. It's it's easier for those guys with a ton of money to put on weight and you know hire trainers, all that stuff, eat the right things. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think you're going to see him kind of like his last year in New England. He's going to play a few weeks. He's going to sit out a while and then kind of come back more towards the end of the year and keep his body healthy for a stretch run. It's probably going to have to be a longer stretch run than he was used to in New England because Tampa's not New England. They're probably going to need to win more games or need him to win more games in the middle of the season. But, I, I mean, you're not going to see him play 16 games. I'd be shocked at that. You'll probably see him kind of pick and choose his spots, not practice very often, and uh, be on the field on Sundays when he's healthy enough. Yeah, I think that that's really the only, that's like the past path of least resistance here. The only thing that I could see Tampa Bay doing a little differently is just saying, Rob, uh, you know, we got this Cam Brake kid to run block. Uh, we could get creative with fullback sets and this and that. We want to split you out. We want you to be a wider, a big old wide receiver target. Like, obviously not running the full route mm-hmm. three, but you saw it last year, like you talked about. Tom would split Gronk out on the yeah. backside of like a three-by-one and just let him get one-on-one coverage. If they send a linebacker out there, Gronk runs a go. If they send a DB out there, Gronk just posts him up. Like, yeah, the mismatch nightmare on the outside. So I think you see a lot more than that than, like, Gronk getting nasty inside and blocking zone run schemes. I'm just excited to see that offense. I really yeah. am. Yeah, it's 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 definitely what we needed uh, in this downtime is something to, you know, jog the, our creative minds just to even, like, forecast what something like that's going to look like and it's going to be weird it's going to be it's going to be jarring when you first see it but at the same time like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to be in five and flexed into a sixth primetime game which um, you know you got a young team and guys who aren't used to that spotlight or used to that daily schedule Tom Brady's going to have to do a lot of uh, fathering I think of this this Buccaneers team as well yeah I'm with you. Um, Matt, we could we could wax poetic about Tom Brady, but uh, let's talk about uh, the Bears here and what they might do on day two of the draft. Obviously, no picks on day one, but um, some target areas for the Bears. We, we glanced at it a, a moment ago. I think that whether it's through trade or through draft or through any other means, they really have to address the tight end position because without Trey Burton, who has now been cut, which make of that move what you may, there was still dead money there um, after signing Jimmy Graham. They can't actually think that Jimmy Graham is a long-term answer at tight end. They need no. to address the tight end position. Do you want to see that done through a possible trade, OJ, a la OJ Howard, or like, do you target a guy and hope that um, Thad Moss is there? Like, what are we doing here at tight end? I am I'm calling about O.J. Howard because as much as you don't want to give up draft picks, I mean, obviously, if you can get O.J. Howard for a fifth-round draft pick, mm-hmm. yeah, I would take O.J. Howard the fifth round, so I'm fine doing with that. Um, that I know this tight end draft isn't that you know, isn't terribly deep, but I, I am again, I'm going to sound like a little bit of a homer here. If either of them are available around 43 or 50, I'd be very interested in Cole Komet, one from Notre Dame. I've seen him play, you know, a, a, yep. I've seen him play, you know, each Saturday for the last couple of years or Chase Claypool. I know Chase Claypool is not necessarily a tight end in position, but if you look at his size, he can, I mean, he has the build of a tight end. He can block on the edge. Don't, again, don't sell me another project. I don't, don't think he's. A I don't project. need another. I don't, I, I don't need think, another project. I don't he's think not, he, I he's, don't not think he's, he's not a traditional. He's not a traditional tight end. Tight end. But, but the Bears' offense doesn't necessarily call for a traditional tight end. They run the spread a lot. You have three tight ends on your roster. Quite honestly, one of the nine guys you had last year that were somewhat serviceable, you can keep on the roster as your, you know, running down tight end, your blocking tight end, and then you have two pretty darn good receivers. Or you yeah, can move Chase. You, you can you, you talk about matchup nightmares. If Chase Claypool was your H back and you move him outside 
right? But if you have a linebacker cover and a six, uh, six, four, 220 pound receiver with four, four speed, that's a mismatch. But if you have a position. five, 11, look corner. at the position right now in like league wide Matt, and how important the position is and how it's been highlighted by dual ability tight ends. The two best tight ends in the game played on Super Bowl Sunday last last year. I don't think that that was in any way a coincidence. Uh, Travis Kelsey and George Kittle, Kittle more than Kelsey, but both of them take great pride in their run blocking ability. And then they're both absolute forces downfield. Maybe Kelsey a little bit more of a downfield threat, Kittle a little bit more of a yards after catch threat, but both of them possess the innate ability to do everything you could ask of a tight end. Those guys exist, I mean, not to that extent. That is the complete best end of the gamut here, but there are tight ends throughout the league who possess those types of abilities. It's kind of what you need in today's day and age. You can't uh, play the defense because you got some hybrid fullback putting his hand in the ground ready to block run and then bring in Chase Claypool I don't, to go run a corner route. I don't like, necessarily disagree with you, but uh, I mean, here's my counterpoint. I, I know it's different to block a corner than it is a defensive end or a safety than it is a linebacker, but Chase Claypool was really, really good on the outside blocking. And again, I know yeah. that's totally different. Secondly, you need to address the tight end position. And if they're not going to trade for O.J. Howard, you kind of have to draft one. And if you look at this draft pool, pretty much everybody after just about Cole Komet, their M.O. is decent receiver, decent route runner, whatever, don't expect them to block. I would yeah. rather take the uber-talented, bigger wide receiver. Grant, I know he's a wide receiver, but 230 pounds, 6'4", is the size of a tight end for the most part. If you pack on you know, maybe just 10 pounds, you're not going to lose that much speed. I think there's a guy that I know you don't want projects. I don't really want projects either. And that might be why they choose to pass on that position in this, in, uh, in the second round. And if they do, couldn't yeah, blame them, I, I, but I, could I see think you have a talented prospect and maybe not the long-term answer at tight end, but a guy for this year in this offense can fit there and he can kind of be a little bit of a hybrid. He can line up on the edge. He can line up in the slot. He can probably put his hand in the dirt here and there. Yeah, I, I think that this year more than last, though, the Bears are in a situation where they have numerous holes to fill. Um, so there's my you, – you're teasing. I'm going to ask you, what holes do you think they fill at 43 and 50? At 43 and 50, I think they go to the defense, whether it's safety, if uh, if Delpit's still out that's, there. That's my big name drops. that I want. I mean, if he drops there, that's can't miss. You have to take him. Mm -hmm. Like, draft SEC defensive backs, thank me later. That's just yeah. what you need to do. When in doubt, draft the South. Um, I think they address that there, if that's if, if that type of player, that caliber of players available. I think you could address safety. I think you could address cornerback there. I think you could address offensive line. Uh, you do need a target, and this is a receiver-heavy draft where there are going to be some really, I mean, not really talented guys, but really uh, name recognition will still mm -hmm. be there at pick number 43, I guess is what I'm trying to yeah. say here at wide receiver. There's that type of depth in this draft. If you're trying to supplement the loss and speed that Taylor Gabriel maybe gave you, I know we didn't we didn't really see, get to see that blossom, but but you are losing a downfield threat there, and you need to have that. Um, and they could address, uh, like we said, safety with with Delpit. Um, Delpit's definitely more of a traditional safety than he is a corner. But I think defensive backfield, I think offensive line can be addressed. Like I said, there are a number of holes, and I think you. You identify your holes, where you need to get better, and then you go best available at 43. That's just the slot you're at in the draft is let's narrow it down to these three positions and whoever we have graded the highest, take that player. Yeah, uh, I 
I, I think that's pretty spot on. I, I think 50 is where you kind of either consider trading back if the guy you don't want isn't there and maybe recoup a, a early third round pick and then a fourth round pick as well. But 43, you got enough positions that you have to fill that you kind of just say, we're going to take the best player available. Um, you mentioned weapons, one that I mean, you mentioned weapons, one and drafting the South, which I usually always agree with from big time programs. Grant Delpit obviously fits that mold at fit, fit, uh, 43. And you said weapons. If T. Higgins is still hanging around somewhere around there, he's a big body with some speed. Obviously went to a big-time program, played in big-time games, went up against big-time players for the most part and held his own. I would love to see him you know, opposite Allen Robinson on the, on the outside. That gives you some yeah. pretty tough matchups in Allen Robinson and T. Higgins, both guys checking in at 6'4", 6'5". Yeah, that would be um, you know, stretch-the-field type stuff, and that's what you need. That's You need to open up. I don't care if it's Nick Foles, Mitch Trubisky, or Matt Rooney. You need to open up the underneath. You need to have a deep threat. And you not only the, the fact that defenses need to scheme for a deep threat, but you got to throw the ball deep, too. I mean, you got to overthrow a receiver. you got to take a shot or two. Um, I'm not going to get into offensive philosophy here of Matt Nagy, but for as free-wielding as that offense is uh, advertised to be, not a it's lot a of lot shots. of BS happening within five yards of the, the line of scrimmage. It's a lot of BS happening inside the sticks, mm-hmm. you know? Um, not a lot of downfield shots. And if we draft a guy who will, you know, present that sort of skill set where Matt Nagy has no other choice but to take three shots at him downfield throughout a game, give me that guy. Yeah. What would you, what would your thoughts be if you hear with the 50th selection in the you know 2020 NFL draft, the Chicago Bears select Jalen Hurts? Um, I feel like it would be early, but I feel like Jalen Hurts is going to go in that range. Quarterbacks uh, always but, go earlier than they should. But now let's talk about it here. From a roster standpoint, Bears have never been a carry three type mm-hmm. team. If there they do that, that means Mitch is gone. It means Mitch is gone, but it means that they're carrying three this season. Or um, they have a or taker. Or, or they, yeah, or they have a which, project, which, whatever. How? Um, I can that's see why, that's that's why I don't think it's likely. Mitch Trubisky that's why, that's why I star. don't think we'll see it. That's fair. No, no one's turning Mitch Trubisky into a star, Matt. If anyone could, it's Bill. Yeah. I think that Bill knows when know. to. I think Bill knows a low a low basement and a low ceiling when he sees it um, more than more than uh, Ryan Taste did. But it's not his again, fault. He's dumb. We could go down dark roads here, but we will not because it's episode one fifty, Matt, and we want to get into some best ofs. You guys sent us some mailbags, so the premise here is topic or question, and it's really just our best of. It's a it's a it's a Moose and Wounds tastemaker list, uh, pointing you in the right directions, which means. Uh, we're going to be giving some recommendations here, and Matt, I think before we dive into these, you need to sit, you, you need to you need to stand in front of the people right now and, and tell them that that I might have been right about something. I don't. Do, do you know what I'm? Do you know what I'm referring to here? You might have been right about something. Uh, uh, I got a, I got a text about an Oreo that you may or may not. Oh no! Yeah, the Oreo thins—they're fantastic. In my Thank defense, you. I never said you were wrong. I just said yeah. I had tried them. I, yeah, I, I originally. I originally, you know, kind of persisted. I, I was against them, but you, I let you explain yourself in that podcast. I didn't say you were wrong, but I said I hadn't tried them. I can't confirm until I try them. I tried the Oreo Thin. I got it's delightful. It's delightful. Yeah, it's very good. The, the proportions on it are just good. It's perfect. I, I was are- I was worried you'd have the very like thick cookie with just the thin amount of cream. 
and that was going to be that was going to be a no go for me. But the cookie's nice and thin; it gives you a nice little crisp. You get just enough. You don't eat the full order. I kind of like it. It's nice. All right, so I need your Oreo power rankings. I know Oreo power rankings they shift once a month here, but yeah, they do. Double Um, stuff, regular stuff, thin. Thin definitely goes above regular stuff for me. Wow. Yeah, double stuff is double stuff is still a favorite. Still king. Probably number two. Uh, followed by regular. Um, I mean, I've had the most stuff ones, and don't get me wrong here and there, those are good, but, like, you feel like you need to brush your teeth after every time, every one you eat. Yeah. Like, it's yep. it's a lot of sugar. How, how do you feel about the golden Oreo? I think I've asked you, but how do you feel about those? Uh, not mad at it. Again, not, not running out to the stores to get them, but if, you know, if, if Big Joe's got one at the house when I'm visiting, I'll have a couple. Mike, lo- Mike loves the Golden Oreo. He has them. Yeah. He has them hanging around. The, when he rarely goes to the store, but when he does, there's usually a pack or two of Golden Oreos coming back. With Beautiful. Um, well, well there, there's Oreo talk per usual. It wouldn't be episode wouldn't, one. Wouldn't be a milestone episode without some Oreo discussion. Um, but let's let's dive right into these topics, Matt. I don't know how you want to do this. Do you want to present the topic? We'll we'll ping pong back and forth. We kind of have the same list in front of us right yeah, now. I think so. Maybe you pick one. I pick one. We'll go. Yeah, why don't we'll you start us off? Standard draft. You're here. the you're the driver of this podcast. You have been since day one. You've always been the guy leading things off. So why don't you lead things off? All right. Um, you know, the, these these topics are going to take us everywhere, so it's really just like grabbing out of a hat here where we're going to go. It, it, it's not going to tell you anything about where we'll be at at the end of this thing, but I want to start with the best final episode to a TV show or a TV series. Um, you know, there's been oftentimes, you know, these shows that we fall so in love with, uh, the ending just misses the mark, and it's hard to put a wrap on a six, seven-year series. Uh, so I want to know who got it right in your eyes, Matt. I think the it's my answer. I, there are two that pop to mind, but the one I'm going with is Breaking Bad. Just because I, you said you watched the last season of Breaking Bad, didn't necessarily watch the full series. Mm-hmm. Um, that for me was a series that you know a lot of them either start out great or kind of peak in the middle and don't figure out how to end. That was a series that, for me, the first and second season, early second seasons, were were not terrible, but, like, I stopped watching after the first season, picked it back up, like, two years later, a year later, and it just gets better and better, and I think that lives up, that that is true in the final episode, too. They they wrap things up very perfectly. I won't spoil it in case we got some people out there, but that that show, more than any other, wraps things up perfectly. You kind of get the endings you, you wanted or at least everybody in that show kind of deserved for the most part, at least the two main characters. Um, it, it was a very, very satisfying, fulfilling ending, for I think, for all those involved. I don't think you're going to find many people that disagree with me that that didn't end pretty perfectly. Now, I didn't yeah, watch I, the movie. Apparently, the movie came out on Netflix uh, a couple months then, ago. I didn't see it yet. And I then heard this week, people okay. were saying Better Call, Call Saul was even better. You know, I've like seen that, that show. Uh, I've watched it through season four. For me, it's it honestly kind of like Breaking Bad, and I think it's the same writer, Vince Gill, but like it started out slow and it's kind of gotten better and better each season so once season five is over i'm going to binge watch it because that's what i do i don't like waiting week to week for things see i'm just a big final season guy i watched the last season of game of thrones watched the last season of breaking bad it's just what i do i jump in i make everyone mad um r.i.p game of thrones i can't uh, i can't argue with your answer there um my answer would be 30 rock and 30 rock was one that like i wasn't running to the television every Wednesday night to throw on NBC and watch 30 Rock. I, But I've binged in the past. I've gone through um, I've gone through periods where that's like the turn it on before bed show. Mm-hmm. Huge fan of 30 Rock and from a sitcom standpoint like this was just like 
emotiveness. Seinfeld was a huge miss that last yep. like three episodes for as much as I love the show. And this was like one of those Americana sitcoms that didn't just mail it in and didn't try and do too much. It, it hit all the notes that 30 Rock did. It was funny. It was emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, Liz Lemon and uh, and Jack Donahue, which is uh, Tina Fey and um, Alec Baldwin's characters, they have their reuniting moment. It, it rounded it out nicely, and I go that layup route because all of my shows kind of that I've like loved over the years have struggled to get to the finish line. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dexter, awful. Sitting yeah, the every, everyone says the Dexter was like the worst ending ever. Great four seasons, awful ending. Um, what else? Sopranos. I mean, make of that what you may, the final episode there. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit ambiguous for me. Um, West Wing was good. West Wing had a good ending. Uh, Dude, we, uh, ending we, we talked about it a little before the podcast. As much as they kind of bungled the last couple seasons, I thought The Office ended pretty perfectly. Uh, I thought the final nicely. episode was yeah. very, very good. And uh, did you ever watch 24? Kiefer Sutherland? Uh, was not Jack a big 24 guy, no. I, I got into it, you know, midway through the series and kind of went back and watched some of them. But I thought 24 ended ended very, very well. Um, the, the, the last season, it's, uh, the, the, the clock did not strike zero. It struck to wow. the final hour. That's what happens. Um, it wow. never strikes zero. Um, but it, it ended very, very perfectly in a very Jack Bauer manner. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, you got one, Matt? Uh, yeah, let me pull up my notes here. Um, let's go with um, this one's easy. We're a golf podcast, right? Always. Uh, best golf course you've ever played. We, we had a longer one that we'll go with a quicker one here. This, this one should be. Okay. Uh, this one did give me a bit of pause because oh. I think maybe one of the more notable golf courses I've played was TPC Harding Park, mm-hmm. but I had a, a bit of a tour experience at Silverado Country Club in Napa, which is a beautiful country club, um, kind of plantation style clubhouse beautiful everything's kind of whitewash painted um very you feel like you're in south carolina almost and except you're at the foothills of these mountains in napa really nice course fun course not like the most you know notable course i've played but setting and everything involved there were grandstands up too so i kind of played it in that like i played up 18 with the grandstands up so like I think that was maybe the coolest golf experience. You waved to the crowd a little bit when you were walking. I, up oh, I tipped the hat. There was a full Give the, the, little, like, the little cool clap over the head. I tipped the hat. I piped in like clapping noises. It was on Instagram. I'm sure you saw it. But, I probably uh, did, but forgot. My Silverado Country Club experience was probably the best out in Napa. That was a uh, week and a half, two weeks prior to them playing the Safeway Open out there. There you go. That's uh, how did you did you get on it? Because you said you had your media credentials. Because there was a uh, they did like a media unveiling okay. uh, sort of thing. So a bunch of media members played it. Am um, I ever going to get invited to these media golf events, Joe? Uh, I mean, you got to live out in California. Just, There's just more of them. Invite. There's just more of them. Say, uh, I got a guy. He's got played with played with Kings legend uh, Gary Gerald, who is the voice of the Sacramento Kings, who just a great guy. Who um, yeah, but we shared, he, we shared eighteen. What kind of player is he, Matt? If I had his game uh, when I hit seventy years old, like sign me up for that right now because. G-Man is straight off his nose, no big miss. Uh, We were playing, it was a shotgun format off the tee, so everyone played from the same tee ball. So G-Man would pipe one out there, two bills plus, maybe 230, uh, give us a long to mid-iron in, and just give me green light to swing as hard as I could at a driver. That's that's, that's that's the most fun way to play a scramble. That's my favorite scramble type partner. Is when you have someone that you know is going to be in the fairway, it's like, 
all right, cool. This is either going to go yeah. 300 down the middle or 300 yards to the left, and there's no pressure. And, uh, you know, Gary and I had a great working relationship prior to getting paired up out there. But then after that, you know, anytime you share around a golf with someone, oh. you feel like you shared more than maybe just like a working relationship. You know, you, you're, you're, you spend five hours with someone, you truly get to, you know, know them. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's one of the joys of the game that we love there so much and was lucky enough to share that with, uh, with G-Man. Once again, adding to my Silverado Country Club experience. There you go. Um, I am going to, I've been lucky enough to take some vacations over the last few years that have kind of, we've kind of created. Notable? We've I think kind of, say notable, notable is, is good. We, yeah. we've, me and I will, I'll give my brother Mike and, and my brother Tim some credit here too. We, we've found ways on vacation to sneak around of golfing at a nearby really nice golf course to get away from the vacation, mm-hmm. get away from the group, go play some golf. Last year we were able to do Chambers Bay. Um, two years or two, three years ago, we were able to do Keogh Island. And then uh, when when our good buddy Rob was over coaching in Europe, uh, Matt Seagert and I went out to visit him and took a detour in Ireland to go play Royal Portrush before they hosted the British. That one is for me is my uh, is, is my favorite golf course I've ever played. It was a linksy golf course, but it wasn't like St Andrews wide open. There were still a lot of hills that kind of blocked you know wind and, and stuff like that. So it wasn't like you were facing you know fifty mile an hour gusting winds the entire time, and the scenery off the top was was pretty much unmatched the clubhouse was old and seemed like something from the in the midwest in the 1990s but that's okay i don't need to spend much time in there i spent way too much money in the gift shop buying things for myself and and something (laughs) for each of my family but that's that's really the drawback to go to play in a nice place is like you gotta you gotta come out of there with a quarter zip a head cover ball marker yeah the club obviously i'm gonna drop a couple hundred bucks on the round but like what's gonna be more my receipt from the pro shop or my receipt from the <laughs> round of golf i don't know it's pretty much a coin flip which one's going to happen but of all the nice courses i've been lucky enough to play that one that one probably tops the list for me that i can make an argument for a few others uh, very nice they are all fantastic experiences whether at local munis or at country clubs and tour sites uh, our, our, our local caddy there gave us actually we, we had to catch a train back to dublin and instead okay. of walking 15 minutes to the train with our, our bags, our caddy just said, yeah, just throw them in my trunk. I'll give you a ride. So our caddy just gave okay. us a ride. Just, awesome. just said, those type, that's the type of people you find out there. Good wholesome people, people up, in, up in Port Russia, yeah. Northern Ireland. Uh, Matt, we're going to keep things, yeah, we're going to keep things on the golf course here. Always. And, uh, you know, so often we, we sit and we, um, we speak of these legendary moments and they're often tiger related. So I want our best non tiger golf highlight that comes to mind. I got a couple uh, that, that I have three that popped into my mind right away that I'm going to stick with. One is obviously Phil hitting the putt to win his first masters. And then he showed off the credit card hops, getting barely off the ground. Um, the other was Patrick Beautiful. Reed and Rory kind of dueling in the Ryder Cup where they made, where Rory made the big putt and then Patrick made one right back in his face and they kind of did pointing at each other. Uh, yeah. and if we're talking specific highlight, I know Adam Scott ended up winning that Masters in 2013 and I, I've never been a huge Adam Scott fan because I don't like that he used the anchor putter and I think it was basically cheating. That's neither here nor there. Um, my favorite, one of my favorite highlights ever came on 18 after Adam Scott made like a 20-footer to uh, take the lead, or uh, yeah, get, we put him at nine under and gave him a one shot lead over on Hal Cabrera. Cabrera piped a drive, you know, right dead center on 18, had like 150 in in the pouring rain, just absolutely stuck what was, I think, a nine iron to about two feet. 
And it yep. was one of those right off the club. You can hear him talking to it, and you knew he hit it just right. Nance's call was perfect, stuck two feet, tapped in, ended up losing the playoff. But that is, for me, one of my favorite shots I think I've ever seen in Masters history that's not Tiger-related. Um, for for my money, there's no bigger moment. There's no bigger stakes, quite literally, uh, than Rory's hole out in, I believe it was 2016 at the Tour Championship. Um, when he holed out mm-hmm. to take the lead, I believe that was on 17, if I'm not mistaken, at the Tour Championship at Eastlake. Holes out to win the tournament, to win $10 million. Like, just the comeback that he made on the back nine there I know it's a non-major moment but when you think of golf and you think of gambling and you think of what's on the line and having to hit a shot uh, I, I'm hard pressed to find a bigger dunk uh, than than Rory holding out yeah. in 2016 you're a Rory guy aren't you you like you like yourself some Rory I do I'm not like a I'm not at the I'm not front row of the bandwagon like I'm not leading the charge but Love Rory, love the swing, love his intersection of athleticism and like pure um, roots of the game. Like he's got that Northern Ireland, like we could like knock it around with mashy nibblies, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, give me a tailor-made driver and you've never seen someone swing at it like I have. Like he's like, I feel like he's a perfect merge of old and new. That's what I really enjoy about watching him play golf. I just think he should be better than he is in that box. 100%. 100%. And even like the majors he's won, he's kind of done it not, unless I'm missing one off the top of my head, in not very close fashion. He's kind of done it fairly easily. I don't know. I, I need to, he had the one chance to win the Masters, kind of blew it. And I mean, granted, Spieth made a huge comeback. And then you, know, you saw him at Portrush, you know, at his home course. I think he missed the cut. Um, I, I'm just, I just stopped short of slandering a man who's going to finish his career with a career grand I know, play. but I because think only, well, that's fair. He'll be, what, the sixth player he's, in the history of the game? He's still got to win that Masters, Joe. And, and he will. Okay. Rory McIlroy hits a draw. He's longer than everyone. He will win a Masters in the next 20 years when he still has this sort of long what ball we, ability. This sounds like a bet. This sounds like a which We should bet. So your odds are probably better than mine. I would say. Yeah, Take I was gonna to say, like, if you're giving me 20 years worth of masters. Yeah, how many? How many? How many boxes of golf balls? Uh, we'll have to. We'll have to draw this. Maybe we'll for talk. every year he doesn't do it, it the odds bump one. So he's got to do it for me in the next 20 years for me to win a dozen golf balls. But if he doesn't do it, I owe you 20 to one. 20 dozen golf. Balls. Perfect. So in, when I am, if I'm still able to play golf at age 48, I'll have. To I would hope that that's balls. the case. And I hope it's the case too. Uh, why don't you hit me with one? All right. Um, you know, we got one more golf one, but we'll, we'll change subjects. I think we'll come back to that one. Okay. Um, this one is one of two from my brother, Michael. He wants to know best baseball park, ballpark you've been to. We've uh, both been lucky enough to be to quite a few, I believe. So g- give me your best ballpark you've been to. Um, Fenway seems like such a layup answer here, but... Just the baseball experience and the mystique in Fenway. I, I've said it here before. I imagine it's what people feel when they walk into Wrigley. We don't necessarily, because we've been there countless times, mm-hmm. we're in a way desensitized to it. But just the allure, the lore, um, the history that's happened in that park, I'd say Fenway with a close second being the park formerly known as AT&T, now Oracle Park in San mm-hmm. Francisco. Another awesome just slice of prop pretty there right on the ocean 
been, I mean, with McCovey Cove there and the walk up to the stadium still feels very ballparky. Like you're like mm-hmm. three blocks, yeah. four blocks removed from downtown San Francisco, but you feel like you're in this own little like ballpark village because it's on like a peninsula jetty. Um, really, really cool ballpark experience there. I loved Oracle. I didn't spend enough time there to be able to really fully kind of get the full, um, you know, treatment of it. I mm-hmm. think I didn't get there. My flight was delayed like seven hours, and I didn't end up also, getting to like the sixth inning. nicest baseball press box I've ever been in, Oracle Park. There you go. Um, I thought what Oracle does, Oracle Park has the, like, it gives you a very nice San Francisco vibe to it. It's not an old park, but you kind of have a feel of a vintage ballpark uh-huh. when you're in it, even though it's ne- not necessarily. They've had the championship moments there to bolster that yeah. venue as well. You know, it has its history, even though it's recent. I've been, uh, Fenway is up there, but like, again, it's a nice park, but what makes it Fenway is kind of the allure to it. And if we're just going on strictly ballpark, I don't think Uh it's my favorite. I think my favorite ballpark I've been to is Camden Yards in Baltimore. Um, it it has, like you said, it has a little bit of a ballpark village kind of right outside of it. There's a strip of bars, um, just outside the ballpark, pretty much surrounding it that you can go to. Uh, the views from the ballpark are fantastic. They have the little, like the, what's it, the... I forget what that is out in right field, but they have the little walkway. I forget what the building is behind it, but that big red brick building that has some nice scenery. Yep. You can see some side the century, whatever you can, you can see the, uh, kind of the skyline in the background a little bit. They do a really cool thing where they have on the, the walkway out in right field, every home run that's been hit to it. They put a little like gold plaque, the size of a baseball saying who hit it, you know, uh, how far it went. And Chris Davis has like half of them out there from back when he was still on steroids. Um, it's a beautiful ballpark. There's not a bad seat in the house. Some great food. That, that I think, is my favorite ballpark I've been to. If we're just talking strictly ballpark, not like necessarily, obviously, the Orioles don't have the history of the Red Sox. Camden yeah. doesn't have the history of the Red Sox. But just from a, a strictly ballpark standpoint, I love that place. Uh, it's, it's one that I have not been to, but is on the list. One I've heard great um, few things about is Coors Field, but I also have not been there yet. Coors Field, and then what's it called in uh, Pittsburgh still, PNC? Is oh, PNC is, is another one that people yeah. say. Everyone just, says that that's, that's kind of, it's it's PNC, and then everyone else is essentially yeah. what I've heard before. Interesting. Well, we, we, got some, um, we got some parks to get to. How about that one yes. in Lincoln, Nebraska? You and I met that one time. Uh, what was the, the Haymarket Park? Yeah, that was Haymarket Park. Top, top, top the, five. Top five. Home of the Lincoln Salt Dogs. Top five. For sure. Great Amer- for an American Legion Park and for like a Big Ten home stadium for the Huskers. Very awesome solid. Park. Very solid for what kind of, yeah, for, for who's playing there. Yeah. Um, all right, Matt, we got plenty more to get to here. Uh, let me look at our list. Let's go food. I think we need to go back to food here and uh, you know, get I love to our that. best. We're just doing our best bite in Chicago. If you have just like one bite. Um, off the plate, uh, you could go highbrow, you could go lowbrow. What's your best bite in Chicago? Uh, so at first, I, I was a little bit, I didn't know if we were doing like best meal, best, you know, restaurant kind of in general. But if I have one bite of food of anything in the city of Chicago or Chicagoland area, it's the first bite of a Johnny's combo juicy. And, Easy. And because you get the, I love the first bite because you get that, it's obviously it's still kind of hot, or obviously mm-hmm. pretty hot. And you have what, what I love about that Italian sausage is you have the little crispy part. Like, it's still kind of crispy end. on the end. You got a little char end. on the end. Oh. Don't get me wrong. The, the entire thing's fantastic. But the crispy end combined with the beef and the ju- I think I might have to go get one this week. Support See, local businesses. This is where we've this is where we reach consensus. And that's also my answer to this question. And I think that um, without even asking the question, the mm-hmm. listeners would have known our answer here. Yeah. But uh, juicy 
juicy combo, hot pepper. I do a little hot pepper. I know you don't. I don't like pepper. Um, not a big pepper person. I do the little 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 jardinier on there. But that first bite, you make a great point. Hmm. And my technique is often, you know, you go first bite, second bite. I don't eat it all. Let's say you're taking the first bite on the left end or the right end, whichever mm-hmm. end you're starting on. I don't go all the way through. I'll probably do three bites, and then I work from the other side. So you get that other Ooh. first bite. Interesting. From the same. Because if yeah. you, I like that because if you if you wait till the end for that last bite that crispy and not cold but it's more like it's it's it's, it's not full effect it's not it's it, not full if effect. you take two but that's kind of like because the first bite can sometimes be a little you know too hot even though it's still delicious if you wait uh-huh. about three bites that back end is going to be that's going to be about a perfect temperature uh i'm going to put you on the spot here matt for oh, a God. non for a non johnny's bite oh that's tough uh actually you know no it's not cajun ribeye chicago cut give me one bite of those give me one bite of that that's a good call that's a good call. I'm a, I'm a steak dinner guy. You know that. That's, that's yeah, my, and, and you know that's that's quintessential Chicago. You got to have your steak dinner. You know, you got to have your spot for it. Chicago cut, fantastic. Mm-hmm. I remember you know being introduced to Chicago steakhouse culture at the old Chop House, the now defunct Chop mm-hmm. House. That you just felt like you can smell the cigarette in the carpet and like <laughs> Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra sitting at the table across from you. Um, but yeah, what's yours? I'd say. Give me one. I, I, I'd, I'd lean towards you know anything off the off the menu at Chicago Cut for a steak. Um, a kind of a, a sneaky one here that I'm going to give you is uh, crisp. It's called. It's on Clark on the north side, probably like Clark and I'd say Division. No, Clark and uh, not Division. Clark and uh, Diversity. I'd say like Diversity and Clark, and um, it's a Korean wing spot. And they're That's crispy. Their crispy chicken wings are, and I know Bird's Nest is the gold standard for a regular mm-hmm. wing, but they have like a like a Korean Szechuan wing that's absolutely unbelievable. I think it's spelled K R I S P. So that's kind of a little bit of an off the beaten path one. Interesting, interesting. My brother Mike's a big wing guy, so maybe he'll check that out. Gotta try crisp. I okay. think I'm getting that right. Crisp. There you go. But if yeah. not, we'll figure it out. Uh, all right, my turn, my turn, my turn, my turn. Uh, let's go. This one, another, another quicker one. Best jersey you've ever owned, other than the Blackhawks number six Musso captain jersey. Can we, can we just let that one die? Because... No, that's a, that's a running joke with the podcast. Okay, well, again, I know your mom got it for you. I it's, want it's, to it's, need to, it's, it's I want a beautiful to need gift. To defend myself. It I was bust. a gift from my mother. It's and. And she she recognized the leader that I was, so she threw the That's, C on there. Yep. I didn't feel like I earned it. I didn't feel like I earned the C. Oh, deep, now, d- deep now, down, you kind of did. No, I think an A would be way cooler. Be like, I don't want all the responsibility, but I'm still like top tier. Um, but again, it's a it's a customized jersey. Unless I'm lacing up skates, I really can't put that thing on. Fair uh, enough. So that would not be my answer. Now, my best jersey I ever owned. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna give it to you two ways here. Most obscure and most worn. Uh, my most worn jersey, any chance I got to wear my turquoise number 13 Dan Marino jersey as a kid, Solid I was one. wearing it. It's a good uh, one. That one probably closely followed in number of wears by my Terrell Davis jersey, but most obscure. So, like, weirdest, never really wore it, but it just mm-hmm. hung in the, in the closet. I had a uh, Jason Giambi All-Star Game jersey with the Yankees patch on the that sleeve is that the All-Star Game was in Chicago. So, uh, it says, like, American on the front, Giambi on the back with the Yankees patch. Very random. That, that, is, that is very random. I Obviously, with me, I... I 
go to a lot of Blackhawks games, and the first jerseys that kind of popped in my head of owning were Blackhawks jerseys. If I'm thinking non-Blackhawks jersey, I think my favorite okay. jersey I ever owned, I had a powder blue LT jersey. Loved that thing. Fantastic Very jersey. Nice. One of the best jerseys in all the sports. Um, now, this this jersey I technically didn't own. It was technically my dad's, but our family, like, we, we kind of like all of our jerseys, you know, if you wanted to wear one, you pass them around. Yeah. Great, kind of pass them around. We had, and we were we were lucky after the 2010 Cup. My dad bought us all white cane jerseys because that's the, you know the, the cup clinching goal. After 2015, nice. he bought us all red Duncan Keith jerseys, who is my favorite hockey player of all time. And that is one. That's probably my second favorite jersey I own, or we own whatever. My, my favorite jersey though, we have. Uh, I'm not. Sure, have you ever heard the name Brent Sutter, former Blackhawk from the? 90s? I have. <laughs> so former Blackhawks alternate captain from the 90s. Uh, both of my brothers actually grew up playing hockey with his kids. Um, okay. And my dad, he also was an assistant, you know, helped helped out coach at, uh, when, my, when my dad was the head coach of uh, one of Mike's teams. Um, okay. So my dad bought his Blackhawks jersey. And I, I got to tell you, Joe, starting with those, you know, late, uh, you know, two, 2009-2010s playoff runs, Mm-hmm. Th- that wasn't an every game jersey, but that I don't remember how it got started. But it got started as a must, got a and like run. we gotta have it jersey. And I swear to God, Joe, every time we wore it, we wore that jersey to a game, it usually fell on me. The Hawks did not lose. The the, the one that yeah. sticks out to me wore to they were down three one to Detroit, busted out the Sutter jersey, they won. And uh, the, the the Sutter jersey had this allure to it uh, that the Hawks were not going to lose when that jersey was in the house. And that's what happened. The Hawks didn't lose. So for me, that that's their jersey holds some significance. I'm going with the, the number 12 red 1990s Brent Sutter jersey. So similar to the effect that, that a young Joe Musso had when starting a when starting a uh, Let's Go Hawks chant yeah. uh, against Just, the Rangers. There you go. The you sparked a cup run. I sparked a couple. There, there you, you go. go. <laughs> Where are our rings? Uh, what do we got next here? Best jersey was your question. Let me yep. see. Um... Let's go best career ending moment. You know, a lot of times uh, these careers, they fizzle. You don't see uh, it's not representative of what the career was. But what's your best career ending moment? A couple obviously come to mind here. Uh, who do you think takes the cake in this category? You know, I I gave some thought to this one and I'm trying I've been trying to think for a while. Like, was there a walk off moment? Was there this great? You know, uh, you know, playoff walk-off moment, or you know, Super Bowl winning, mm-hmm. where you, you throw the final touchdown or hit a home run to win the World Series, whatever. There weren't a ton that popped in my mind. I think you're going to bring up a different Yankee, but one for me was Mariano Rivera's last outing, um, where Jeter and Pettit, and I believe that was it, went out. Oh, there. when they it all might have been Girardi yeah. too. When all went out to go grab him, and that was a really cool moment for me. Um, but this is going to be similar to another answer for me later on. But John Elway winning back-to-back Super Bowls. Yeah, um, those are really the first two Super Bowls I remember. I kind of became a Broncos fan for the, for oh, the first one that he won because, yeah. man, did I hate the Packers. Um, yep. So the, the next year, I can, with the Bears still being terrible, I kind of naturally rooted for him. And you know, having gone his entire career and not winning anything, coming so close, uh, and then winning you know the back-to-back Super Bowls, the Falcons won obviously a dramatic, kind of blown out of water. That for me, walking off a two-time back-to-back Super Bowl winning champion is is probably best career-ending game for me. Yeah, and I think you could go with uh, another Bronco situation there with Peyton Manning, but Peyton wasn't Peyton Manning uh, at that last Super Bowl run with the Broncos. You know, mm-hmm. he was he was pushing it around the yard, leaning on the defense. Uh, no disrespect, a great way to go out winning a championship. But for me, 
the moment of Jeter hitting the walk-off in his last home game with the Yankees and then sitting on the road, it was just the best way to end a career. And it was finite because a lot of times when these guys are in competitive moments, you don't know when it's going to end because they got playoff baseball, they don't have playoff baseball. The Yankees were bad enough to just give Jeter his final moment, ending it with an opposite field you know, mm-hmm. slap base hit. Or was it a double? It was, oh, slap, it was slap base hit, yeah. Yeah, slap base hit, walk-off winner. It's basically um, what he did his entire career for the most part. Yeah, was that, it, it was, that, that was his hitting. Activity. It was the perfect summation of that career and what he had done. Now, the fact that the season ended during the regular season it was very uh, non-jeter, but just everything about, else about that moment was, yeah. uh, was a fitting ending. That's a good one. I like that. All right, so Here. my turn now. My turn, my turn. Let's go with this one might be a little bit off the beaten path, but still sports. Um, you, you might be able to take it from one of the, the major sports, maybe not. Best athletic feat, not necessarily seen in person, maybe even seen live, but one that jumps out to you that you know, you've know you seen highlights of, You've maybe you've seen live. Best athletic feat. This one has been really tough for me because like, so many things happen that we like those eye-opening moments. You know, you can think about Chapman's 106-mile-an-hour fastball or like, uh, you, you know, some throws that maybe Puig has made from the outfield, but my mind goes to just the gold medal runs out of uh, out of Michael Phelps. I mm-hmm. think that, you know, not watching swimming, uh, we kind of think of it as this moment, but it was a career. You know, it was the culmination of a career for, for Michael Phelps and watching them, you know, watching the relays team go out there below teams out, watching him win the short distance, the mid-range distance, like just mm-hmm. – just the consistency with which he dominated the rest of the world, I think, puts that at the top of my um, athletic feat list. Uh, I think naturally the Olympics is kind of where my head first started to go to, too, because you know, obviously, like you said, there are some things that happen in major sports that are unbelievable. But the I think the pure athleticism kind of comes out more in the Olympics a bit. Uh, you said Phelps. That's one that jumped out to me. Another one was obviously Usain Bolt, just kind of shattering records. Um, yeah. But the one that jumps out, it, the, the name Kurt Angle is usually associated with, you know, professional wrestling, like oh, the wow. WWF, all that stuff. But in 1996, <laughs> he, broke, he broke his neck in trials, not even the actual Olympics. He broke his neck in Olympic trials and then went on to wrestle in the Olympics and win a gold medal. Obviously, he was told it can't hurt any further, just going to hurt really, really bad. But he wrestled the world's best wrestlers, you know, which is, I mean, I think you wrestled one year, but I mean, we knew wrestlers in high school, all that stuff. You know how hard that is. You know how hard wrestling is, how physically demanding it is. He wrestled the world's best with a broken neck and still managed to win a gold medal and be the best around. So that, for me, just jumps out as... Uh, it's almost unbelievable that he was able to do that. Kurt Angle getting some love here on the Moose and Ruins podcast. I never thought I'd see the day, but uh, that is a good one. Yeah, I mean, we could go on and on. About, USA, uh, Joe. USA. About the things that these amazing men and women have accomplished over the years. Um, but Short, we do close, have to get close to second it. is uh, Matt Rooney's freshman year. 300 yard show just pure people still talk about people it. still talk about the it. people are actually still no clamoring senior year or maybe junior year i wore a pair of shorts that was a little bit too big and they were kind of falling down on me so i actually had to run like the second half of it holding holding my shorts still yeah. made my time no that's, big deal that's, that's big time stuff you ran were, the second one in just compressions which was a sight yeah, to see you were a linebacker running lineman times by the way easy so. <laughs> 
Um, we got a couple more here to get to. Uh, let's go with our best non-Chicago championship moment. Obviously, when we talk about championship moments, um, we think Hawks, we think White Sox, uh, a lot of people think Cubs. Um, we have not had the pleasure of thinking Bears. Uh, you could think Bulls if you have that memory of the last few, but uh, being from our age group at least. But your best non-Chicago championship moment, when you really just sat down, looked at something, and knew you were watching history. Um I'm going to go with, again, this is, we talked about, I just talked about a couple answers ago. Um, like Jordan in 98, this is one of my first, you know, real, not just sports memories, but memories in general was the 98 Super Bowl and the 97, 98 Super Bowl when uh, Elway and the Bronco, Elway got his first Super Bowl against the Packers. I remember becoming somewhat of a Broncos fan those two weeks because of obviously just being a kid, you know, knowing how much I was supposed to hate the Packers and how much I hated the Packers. I was convinced the Packers were going to win the football game. And it was a close back and forth game. Obviously, Elway ended up coming out and winning it. And I don't think I grasped quite the historical significance of it at the time because it was obviously his first one. But looking back on it, remembering how happy I was at the time, Elway winning that Super Bowl. I think that's the first ever hat I remember owning was my dad bought us the, the Broncos Super Bowl hats because they beat the Packers. Um, but that was that one probably goes down as, as my favorite non-championship moment because for me, it really, obviously I was always going to get into sports, be a sports fan, but that's the first thing I remember, first yeah. real game I remember kind of brought me into sports. Um, for me, I, I remember like being in 28 to three immediately comes to mind because mm-hmm. I remember sitting there and watching it and being like, what am I watching? But, um, it might not be, you know, because of the moment of victory and it definitely isn't, but last year's NBA finals, um, being in the building when clay hurt his knee mm-hmm. and, um, you know, with KD down and Kawhi taking Toronto to their first championship in such a long time. Uh, just the mass of storylines that came at us in a two-week span there in that series culminated by a missed Steph Curry shot in the final game at Oracle Arena. It was just like, I really felt like, you know, I had been a part of history on that night. So that one will forever um, stick in my memory, you know, standing right there as, as Steph and Draymond and all those guys walked off the court, you know not knowing what the future of the team was, not knowing what Durant's future was, not, I mean, knowing that they'd never again play in the building Mm -hmm. and won their championships. It was just, it was more finite than, than anything I'd felt in sports before. It was, it it was odd. It was entertaining. Um, the, the true human emotion of like watching Clay Thompson's dad realize that his son had torn his ACL. Like there was just a lot there that I was privy to more than, you know, just the game. So that, yeah. one, that one always sticks with me. Another one that I just thought of that kind of sticks out, I didn't just think of it, but just that, that always sticks out and always will, not just because it was USC losing, but the Texas-USC national championship game just being yes. possibly not just the best college football game, the best football game I've ever watched. The best sporting um, event. And, <laughs> and the fact that that happened in the Rose Bowl and not in the Sugar Bowl or wherever made it that much better in my opinion so that one's probably a, a close second for me after it for after uh after elway and the broncos big elway guy today huh yeah it's it, the answers are, are there for him i mean i guess you could say best career ending game vince young texas career ended after that can't even go with that there you go um is it my turn yep uh all right let's see which ones haven't we done i think we only got like two left here yep all right you want to go you want to go golf ish or would you like to keep it you know sports game type thing let's finish golf let's keep it sports okay. right now. favorite rivals uh favorite rival team you know 
blowing it moment. Favorite rival, collapse, whatever. I mean, not doesn't have to be, you know, the Red Wings against the Blackhawks. It could be, you yeah. know, the Red Wings against somebody that's just not that just any rival blowing it in a big time moment that you kind of felt really like, all right, that was awesome. I, I love that. Um, Celebrate. You know, I, I don't find too much joy in even rivalries losing. Like, yeah. That's I'm, where I'm, you and I I'm, differ. I'm obviously rooting for the other team. I'm rooting for whatever the Bears need from a standings standpoint or from whatever my team needs from a standing standpoint. But, like, beyond uh, my disdain for the Packers, I really don't have a team that I truly hate. Yeah, mm-hmm. the Michigan rivalry is great, but I didn't go to Notre Dame. What am I, mm-hmm. who am I going to, like, what am I going to do here? I, I got no dog in this fight. I still um, hate him. I'm just, an, I'm just a Notre Dame fan. Like, like muck fishing yeah but it doesn't hit my soul the way the packers hit my soul um and being able to again not to make this like a, a last year thing or like a recency bias but watching the packers from kickoff to the final whistle get absolutely dismantled on monday night football by the uh, 49ers, 49ers last year and be able to take that in from field level was one of the true joys of my uh, broadcast career. They and got smoked. They got absolutely dismissed. The first snap offensively was a sack fumble touch or sack fumble recovered at the one um, that was snuck in on the next play. Like it was, it was the just beating of Aaron Rodgers, and I got to watch it firsthand, and it brought me great joy. There were uh, the the ones that first popped into my head for me were also Packers. The, the first one I can really remember was also a Packers Niners game, the uh, the wild card game where Steve yeah. Young found To and To got absolutely leveled, but held on to the ball. Um, there was Kaepernick going off against the Niners in like sub zero temperature or against the Packers in sub zero temperatures at Lambeau. Um, one, the, the, there's three that kind of jump out to me. Is you said you hate, you don't, you don't like Michigan, but you don't feel hatred for them. I've always kind of felt hatred for them. Um, the missed, the punt, you know, block, whatever you want to call it, loss against Michigan State, where all they'd do is get off a punt at the big house and they'd win. That was pretty <laughs> epic. Partially, I remember being in the Hawks press box watching that game, and Pat Foley was literally across the press box doing his prep, but he's a big Michigan State fan, I could hear him screaming from literally in t- the, across the entire press box uh, <laughs> because he was that pumped up. Another one, when Michigan had the, it was a like, 10-point lead against Ohio State in 2016 at Ohio State. They ended up blowing it. I remember being at my good friend Matt Siegert's house, who's a Michigan fan, and when they lost in overtime, he was face down on the floor for a good 10 minutes not yeah, moving. It's a tough spot. You know, it's a tough um, spot. <laughs> number I, I, number one, though, I think was the Red Wings were going for a repeat in 2009. It was right after they beat the Hawks, too, so I was kind yep. of extra bitter about them. Uh, at the time, I was you – know, Sidney Crosby was only 22. I was you know, loved the up-and-coming, you know, great legend, whatever. And he – the Penguins went into Detroit in Game 7, one, two to 2-1. And at the time, even though I grew to love Marion Hosa more than just about – any other player to ever play sports the image of him kind of jumping from pittsburgh on the one-year deal to go be a mercenary for losing back to back still losing <laughs> in a red wings uniform sitting up against the bench looking dejected i'll never forget that image and i was like all right that was that was awesome that was really really cool especially doing it on home ice uh that team was supposed to be better than the one that just won seeing them lose and the red wings blow it was always was always then he nice. came then he came home for his then cops. he came to the right side and well look what's right. happened uh, Matt, we got one more to get here to on our Moose and Noons episode 150 best of. Uh, we hope these spark some best ofs in your mind because we are so lucky to have these moments. Not right. 
at this moment, we, but uh, they'll be back, and so we'll I, was gonna say, I will preface this. We, we I do at least have a couple more here that just because we didn't get to them in this episode, these are great fuel for some mailbags that we'll probably bring back because I yeah. think these have, these have gone pretty well. Definitely have a few that we're still that at least I'm still sitting on. You might be as well. So just because we didn't get to it in this episode mm-hmm. doesn't mean we're not going to get to. It. And May is going to be May is going to be slow. That's <laughs> that's one thing I think we'd say for sure. Yes. Uh, once this NFL draft comes and goes, and we do all the uh, recap on it who won mm-hmm. who lost uh, you know tom tom and gronk are are, are in tampa bay we, we don't really have that to lean on like what do we what are we leaning on here what's 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 leg to lean on? we're leaning on the listeners we're leaning on the listeners the, the, the best listeners in the history of podcasting we're leaning on some mailbags we'll get creative too we'll come up with some as well but we need some help guys uh you've been that, doing a lovely job us. you got to keep it up that leaves us with our final topic here from Moose and Runes, episode 150, the best club in your bag. Billy Baru, what do you trust, Matt? I would – most people who have played golf with me more than once probably know this answer. I, my, my dad and two brothers probably already answered this question. Joe, we can be on a 190-yard par 3 or a 150-yard par 3 or anywhere in between. And I will probably make the argument in my head to hit an eight iron as to why that's okay. the right club right now. <laughs> um, and more or less, I usually, like, I have hit an eight iron 190 before I had some win. That was fantastic. But that's probably the worst thing for me because now every time it's even a question, I'm like, oh, I did it that one time. I could probably do it again. That said, the eight iron is the one club in the bag that like, I'm good. It's 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 like Roy McAvoy with the seven iron. Every other club I, I might, you know, want to break here and there from time to time. Yeah. The eight iron doesn't really miss. I, you know, I have a f- pretty fond feeling all of o- over all of my irons, but the wear mark tells the story on my three wood. Um, Ooh, that's an instant. You're not going to find people, a lot of people who would say a they love lot of people wood. struggle with it, and I just. I just choked down a little bit, like over That's it, key and on the three wood. By the way, a, a little, little bit of a choke down, not a lot, just it, a little bit. The contact is always pretty solid, and hit a nice, almost like little stinging low three wood with it. And uh, it's literally, I have my last three wood that I cracked the face on because the wear mark just snapped at one point. Um, and we're getting there on this next three wood. So I've been so consistent over, man like a six-year span with these two clubs that I, I can't help but, but give the three-wood a little love here. It's my saving grace off the tee when I can't find the mm-hmm. driver. Um, keeps me on the map, and uh, it gives me the ability to pretty much go at most par fives and two. I mean, situation withstanding, but um, from a distance standpoint, it gives me enough pop out of the fairway, and I'm, like I just, like I said, I stand over it and feel good. There's not much of a, for that's over over half the battle in my opinion is the mental approach you have with that club the mental confidence you, that yeah. you have in that club but there's not much I, I've grown over the last couple of years to like my three wood more and more and I, I feel pretty confident within the fairway there's not much better feeling off the face than when you hit a perfectly you know crisp fairway three wood right off oh. the face because you're always a little bit it's, it's still always a little bit you know in the back of your head you know it, it's tough to pick a a ball completely clean off a fairway if you're not a really really good golfer um and when you do that when you hit it right off the face squarely and it's you know you know it's going straight before you look but then you do it's got that nice little draw to it it's oh, that that's a, fork in your soul that's it's it. fantastic that's that's beautiful that was beautiful joe you said oh, that very well, beautiful we get uh we get emotional about our about our golf clubs here on the moose and Roots podcast and golf and johnny's that's it 
We thank you for listening to 150 episodes worth of Golf and Johnny's Talk. Uh, we will share, we, we can promise you 151 at least. Um, th- that I can promise you. But there are no promises beyond that. So Moose and Moose listeners, you got to keep us afloat here. Send us those questions, mailbags, everything you got for next week and beyond. We'll do a little draft wrap up and then we'll look forward to whatever is next. And uh, we hope that you guys continue to come along on the ride with us. But 150 up, 150 down, Matt Rooney. Uh, we appreciate you. Why don't you say something nice to the people? Here's to 150 more. If you guys keep tuning in, we'll keep recording. Wow. Wow. How about that? How about that? I Matt, promised you 151. Matt promised you 300. I said. That just goes to show. I said here's We keep two. things on the same page. Yeah. We right. keep things on the same page. It's, it's pretty much we're on the same page with like golf clubs and yeah. podcasting. Uh, appreciate you your hard work as always, Matt. We appreciate you listeners. And That's Call of Duty. We're on the same page with Call 150 of, of the Moose and Moose podcast. But as Matt said, there's Call of Duty to be played. So we'll talk to you guys next week. We'll see, we'll see you in the gulag later. <laughs> May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. I swear I've seen a lot of stuff in my life, but that was awesome. (laughs) Chicken on the steak was phenomenal.